Morning. Man, it's been a great morning, hasn't it? It's awesome to be reminded of what it is that we have in Christ. It's awesome to come together as family, and it's awesome to jump into his word together. So take your Bible. If you've already registered for Easter, go to Matthew chapter 1 with me. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to continue looking at um, the stories that we started a few months ago, talking about faithful women uh, in God's story. So Matthew chapter 1. So let me ask you this as you're turning there. Who is it? in your family that you don't want to claim? <laughs> who is it? Who is it in your family? Is it that crazy uncle who loves to tell stupid jokes? Is it grandmom who loves to leave the big red lipstick on your cheek? Is it some sketchy possible relatives in your past you don't want anybody to know that you're connected with? Who is it? Every family has it. Every family has one. And if you're here this morning and you can't think of one, I'm sorry, look in the mirror, it's probably you. <laughs> As we look at Matthew 1, the genealogy leading to the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, you're going to see that that principle carries through even into the lineage of Jesus. Let's, let's, let's start in verse, verse 1. I'll stop after a few names just to spend some time in each one of, not all of these names, but a couple of these ladies who are named particularly in the genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Pause. There's the first woman's name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and her name is Tamar. Who in the world is Tamar? Tamar was a young lady who was married to Judah's oldest son named Ur. Now, we don't know a lot about Ur, other than it's the easiest name in the world to say, but what we do know about Ur he must have been the third frog. Sorry. All right, us old people got that one. All right, there you go. Let's keep rolling. Not even going to explain it to the whippersnappers. Let's just keep going. Okay. So Ur, what do we know about Ur? This is what we know about Ur, Genesis 38, verse 7. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. That is all we know. Tamar was married to Ur. We know that is, that is the description of who Ur was. We are spared the details. We don't know exactly how he was evil in the Lord's sight, but I guarantee you I know who knew. Tamar. She wasn't spared the gruesome details. Every day she would have seen her husband's wickedness on display right in front of her, and it was so wicked that God stepped in and took his life. Now, following the cultural practices uh, of her time, which we talked about in our study of Ruth, the Leverite marriage, uh, Tamar married her husband's brother. Uh, um, and I know some of you are here like, oh, time out! Don't worry, we don't do it in America. If you did, you'd be much more careful who you married, right? Okay, so, so the idea was this. If a man died without having a male child born to him, it was common for his widow to marry his uh, her brother-in-law, 
so that when the first son would be produced, that first son was actually considered the legal heir of the former husband, of the dead uh, husband. So, so, so here you've got Ur, he's out of the picture, he's dead. She follows the custom of the day. She marries his little brother, Onan, but Onan, and I'm just going to say it for this, just, he refuses to, to get her pregnant. Why? Because Onan knows that if there is no son for Ur, then Onan gets more money and more land. And so he withholds and does not produce the offspring that God actually clearly commanded him to. How do we know that God clearly commanded him to? Him to? Because of what Genesis 38.10 says. Onan did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but God put him to death as well. Now, as you can imagine, Daddy, Judah, is watching all of this happen and begins to think it's Tamar who is the problem. Both his boys who've been married to this woman have suddenly keeled over dead. And he's got one more boy at home, Shayla. And so he's looking at little Shayla like, ah, you go hide for a little bit, little man. And he says, Tamar, Tamar, I, I do, in fact, have another son for you to marry, but he's too young to be married. I promise when he grows up and gets old enough, you can marry him as well, but, but let's give him some time. I mean, he's, he's but a lad. And so Judah then sends Tamar away to go back to her daddy's home like she's damaged goods. And after a long time, Shayla grows up and Tamar is aware that Judah hasn't given him to her as her husband to provide for her, to take care of her. And so now, she's got to come up with an answer on her own. Um, to say the answer was creative would be way too positive a spin on it. What Tamar decided to do, finding out that Judah was traveling, was she decided to get in his way. By getting in his way, what I mean is this. She decided to dress herself up as a prostitute sit along the side of the road so that when Judah, her father-in-law, who obviously was that type of guy she knew would frequent prostitutes, when he came by, he propositioned her. Hey, how much? And she responded, a young goat. And he responded, I seem to have left my goats at home. And she said, that's fine. You can leave some collateral to make sure you, you pay me. Okay, so what should I leave you as, as, as collateral? And she lists it off. I want you to leave your ring. So the ring would have been his signet ring, a, a one-of-a-kind ring per person used to uh, sign legal documents to, to cut contracts, some sort of identifying feature on it. Think, think your driver's license. Leave your ring. Leave the cord the, 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 that hung from your neck, and then leave your, your staff. It wasn't just a walking stick. This, this walking stick would have had on the head of it a, a, a marked with the owner's name so, so you would always find it and it wouldn't get um, lost and nobody else would take it from you. So you give me those three things, the ring, the cord, and the staff, and then you come back, give me the goat, I'll give you back your stuff. And not knowing who she was, he thought that was a great deal and, and he sleeps with her. A few days later, he instructs his servant to go back and says, okay, give that lady the goat and get my stuff back. And the servant's like, okay. And he gets the goat and he heads back to the town and he gets there and there's no prostitute on the side of the road. Well, that's unusual. And so he asks some people, where's the temple prostitute, the cult prostitute that, that hangs out here? And the people had to have thought he was crazy because they're like, there's never been a temple prostitute there, bro. So bro goes home and sees Judah and he's still got the goat behind him. 
we got a problem, boss. She ain't there. And Judah's response is, okay, let's just keep this between us because I don't want to embarrass myself. Little did he know. Fast forward three months. Word gets to Judah that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. And Judah calls for her immediate death. He calls for her to be burned. And it's really interesting because in this one move of having her executed for her immorality, he could free his life from this woman who's been nothing but trouble to him. He could free his youngest, Shayla, from having to marry somebody that he didn't want to marry. And, and this whole ugly chapter of his life could be completely done, washed away, gone, right? And so they're leading Tamar. And, and in my head, I can see the, the pyre being built and the, the flames being lit and the people gathering because this is going to be a public execution that's going to cause everybody else to think twice and not sin with morality again. So, so here come the people to gather and, and she's being led out of her home. And as she takes a step outside, she reaches and says, here, would you please deliver this message to, the, to Judah? messenger brings the message to Judah and he opens it up and as she's being led and, and being prepared to be tossed into the fire and burned for her sin for her immorality Judah opens up the piece of paper and it says the baby daddy is the one whose these things belong to here's a ring a cord and a staff and Judah is ashamed he makes the comment man she is more righteous than I am. She is spared. Ultimately, she has other children. Why in the world, as you are laying out the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would you list Tamar's name in there? Why would such bad conduct be celebrated? You need to understand, this isn't bad conduct. This is scandalous behavior. From beginning to end of this entire story, you, you, you've got a firstborn who is so evil he is killed by God. A, a secondborn who's so bad he's killed by God. A father-in-law who is so callous he sends his daughter-in-law away without the protection that she needs. A father-in-law who is, who is so warped and messed up that he frequents prostitutes and thinks it's no big deal. A daughter-in-law who is so desperate she pretends to be a prostitute. Anybody else have a song running through their head right now? The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. It's such a cute book. Read the Bible. Study the Bible. It'll keep you away from all kinds of uncomfortable conversations. <laughs> this is scandalous with a capital S. Why is it here? to remind us that the only answer for scandalous sin is scandalous grace. God's grace is shocking. It's completely unmerited. It is undeserved. It is outrageous. It is preposterous. It is excessive. It's unlimited. And it covers my sin and yours. So, so speaking of scandalous, let's, let's continue reading. Verse 3, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. 
Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. You want to talk about scandalous? Rahab? See, Rahab's story starts in Joshua chapter 2 after the children of Israel have wandered for 40 years. They're finally ready to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and the first city in their way is Jericho. So Joshua, being a good leader, sends an advanced team of two men into Jericho to scout it out. And, and these two men go into Jericho and they immediately head to the house of Rahab, who is a prostitute and has a house on the city wall. Why, 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 why? Why did these two dudes head to a prostitute's house? Right? There's all kinds of conversation about that. You go online, you can get lost for days talking about this. Why would they do that? Well, one suggestion that I like to think is, is probably the easiest one to swallow is there wouldn't be any uh, um, notice taken if strange men were walking into that house. People were used to that. So it was safe for them to enter into that house. The king of Jericho gets word that there's two spies in his nation and he sends a search team, a search party out. We need to find these two. We need to capture them. We need to execute them. We heard they were at Rahab's house. Rahab takes the two spies and hides them on her roof in between the, the, the crops that she has gathered there. The search team comes and says, have you seen the two spies? And she says, I, I, they were here, but they left. And you should go. Chase them quickly before they get away. Go. <laughs> the search team leaves, and the men on the roof are safe. At night, as those two men are sitting in the, the safety that Rahab had provided for them, she makes this request, and she makes a claim, too. She says, listen, we know, as people who live in Jericho, we've heard of you Israelites. We know that God has provided for you victory after victory after victory. We know that God has provided for you as you walked through that wilderness land. We know that God is with you. We know that we are next. So, so when we heard this, Joshua 2.11, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. Because what we knew is the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. Let me stop for a second, just unpack that last phrase. We know the Lord your God is in heaven above and on earth below. This isn't just some, some, some philosophical God that exists way out beyond where we can see. This isn't just some God who can't be touched or won't hear our affliction. This isn't some God who isn't interested in the daily lives of his people. This is a God who is in heaven and here too. That's why we're scared. Because your God shows Her hope was this. Would you please spare me? Would you spare my family when you attack Jericho? And the spies promised. They promised to protect her. And they give her a scarlet cord to hang out her window to be a sign to the attacking armies that this is where our ally lives. So protect these people here. So you fast forward, and, and, and the story gets to this very nervous city of Jericho. Because they know Israel is coming. It wasn't a sneak attack. Consider that for a minute. They're, they're inside their city. Their wall surrounds them, which gives them protection to a degree, but it also is an entrapment. It keeps them in there, doesn't it? And so as they're inside their, their city, um, every day, what they hear from outside the wall is, my, that would sound like a really bad rooster, didn't it? So that was awful. Yeah. Um, 
That was supposed to be a trumpet. <laughs> I would be scared if I heard that thing too. I don't know. <laughs> Every morning they would hear the, the trumpets and they would peek over the wall and they would see all the soldiers getting into formation with their, their weapons getting before the ark, behind the ark, and then they'd march around the city in complete silence. And then they'd return to their camp. And the next morning, I gotta do it consistent if I'm gonna be anything, right? Same thing, complete silence. Six days in a row, they're awoken by the, the blast of the trumpet and then the silent march of the troops who they know are coming in to wipe them out. And then the seventh day, it all changed. Because they didn't just march once, twice, three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times. And then it was anything but silent. It was loud as they shouted. And as the Israelites shouted, the walls pulled, fell in on themselves. They began to crumble. The, the city began to fall. The people, the soldiers just began to march straight into the city. There was nothing holding them back. Everything had imploded. And so, so the, the, the reality then became that there was victory being given to them. The city is being destroyed. And Rahab and her family are rescued. Imagine that for a second. Everybody else in the city wiped out. The soldiers are going in. And they're, they're, they're killing everybody. And yet they escort one family out of the city. prostitute and her family out of all those people in Jericho a prostitute and her family are the ones who are rescued why no matter how sketchy our past it's never bad enough to keep us from God's rescue God used Rahab to not only save the spies, but to save her family. Uh, the, the remote control has lost its mind, for those of you in the back. Um, you can just go to the title slide, and I'll, I'll just make it colorful language, that's all. Well, that sounds different, too. Gotta be careful. Um, <laughs> so let me go back. No matter how sketchy our past, it's never bad enough to keep us from God's rescue. God used Rahab to save, to save, save, save her family, to save the spies, but even more than that, when they brought Rahab out of the city, they brought her into Israel, and it says she lived in Israel, and, and at the writing of, of, of Samuel, or of Joshua, it says that she still lives there to this day. And as she's living there, she's, she's living among God's people, and she's, she's having her family, she's having her children. God didn't just use her to rescue, the, or, or keep safe the spies, or to rescue her family, or to rescue herself. God used Rahab to shape the character, the faith, and the godliness of a son named Boaz, which we talked about. Boaz, a dude who one day would rescue a Moabite widow named Ruth. Speaking of, let's keep reading. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Here's the story we just spent a month in. I'm not going to retell the entire story, okay? I'm just going to land in this. You know Ruth's husband is gone. You know that Naomi has decided to return back to Bethlehem. You know that Ruth has decided to return with 
Naomi. And because she has done that, she is abandoning her home, she's abandoning her family, she's turning her back on the false gods, and she is clinging to, cleaving to the God of Naomi. She has left everything familiar, so now her only possession in the entire world as they journey back to Bethlehem is her mother-in-law. When you trace Ruth's life, and if you want to do that, let me encourage you, you can go online and and listen to the four weeks of sermons through the book of Ruth. But as you trace Ruth's life, what you see is that even though in Ruth's life the darkness was real, the loss of a husband is real darkness. I don't have time for this. My fear is that when we read scripture, we don't, we don't sanitize it necessarily. We just refuse to allow ourselves to enter into the feelings of the people who are walking through this. The feelings that Ruth experienced when her husband died, no matter what he was like, was real. Those feelings were deep, they were hurtful, she was in agony. It it causes your world to turn upside down. The darkness that comes rushing in, you're not exactly sure what to do with it. it, It's so overwhelming. But what you need to understand is you look at the story of Ruth, what you see is even though the darkness is real, God's care is real too. Even when it feels like everything is dark, there's a God who can be trusted every time. Now sometimes... Sometimes the darkness comes into our life as a result of tragedy, like I would say Ruth. Sometimes it comes as a result of our own sin. The consequences of our sin brings darkness. And then sometimes the darkness we experience is a result of somebody else's sin. Let me keep reading. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Um, So much to say and so little time to say it, so let me be careful. The story of Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife, and I'll get back to why I think it uses Uriah's wife here. The story of Bathsheba is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the way 2 Samuel chapter 11 is written, it presents David as an irresponsible king who's not leading his troops into battle like he is supposed to be. So unlike the the good and humble king that Deuteronomy chapter 17 describes, who who, who wouldn't turn from God's law, he wouldn't go to the left, he wouldn't go to the right, he's just going to pursue God. Unlike that king, David is much more like the king that Samuel warned the children of Israel about in in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when he said, listen, the king, if you want a king, that's fine, but that king is going to come, he's going to take your sons, and he's going to make them soldiers, and he's going to come and he takes your daughters, he's going to do whatever he wants with your daughters. That's the king David was behaving like in 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's exactly what he does with this woman Bathsheba. He knows that she's another man's wife, but he sends for her anyway. And without the specificity of a certain word existing in the text telling the story of David and Bathsheba, you just need to read it to know that this is an act of rape. He saw, he wanted, 
and he took. That's King David. That's not nobody. And, and then, then when Bathsheba becomes pregnant, David tries to cover up his sin. Bring, bring Uriah home from the field. See, see, her husband Uriah was out fighting a war for King David. Bring, bring Uriah home, bring Uriah home. Oh, Uriah, good to see you, buddy. Captain, high five. How things going, man? Things good, good, man. I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate your service. I just wanted to let you know how much I, I love that you are willing to sacrifice your, 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 your time, your energy, and even your own, at risk of your own life, to, to serve the king. I'm so proud. You know what, bud? I'll tell you what. Why don't you, why don't you go home? Sleep in your own bed. Sleep with your own wife. Go ahead. We'll talk in the morning. And Uriah leaves the king's presence and lays on the front stoop of the king's home because he refused to take the comfort that was waiting for him at his own home while his brothers in arms were still in, in battle. The next morning, David finds out this isn't good. Okay, this isn't good. So, so hey, hi, do, you, do you like a little wine, Uriah? And he gets Uriah drunk, hoping that Uriah might accidentally wander back home, and then, and yet Uriah turns to the stoop and sleeps there. So when David's plan doesn't work, because ironically enough, Uriah is more righteous than David himself, David then plots and has Uriah killed in battle. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. David has all of the guilt here. He had the power and responsibilities of a king, but he used them to do evil. He abdicated his responsibility. He, he committed uh, a sexual assault. He lied and he murdered. And so as, as God viewed David and who he was, he says, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Okay? So now, with that in mind, as we, as we read through the genealogy and we get to this section and we find the wife of Uriah listed here, we remember the sin of David, even though he was the king, king of Israel. And, and remember, do you remember the, how this works? God sends Nathan the prophet to David, right? David thinking he had gotten away with it now that Uriah's dead and he's brought Bathsheba into his harem. So now, now David has gotten away with his indiscretions, right? Until Nathan shows up on his doorstep and says, oh, good king, I have a, I have a problem I need your help with. See, there's, there's a rich man and a poor man. And they live out in the country, and this rich man, I mean, he has got flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep. But the poor man, he's got one little ewe. And this poor man treats this ewe like he like he treats his children. I mean, he, he feeds it with the scraps from his table. He allows it to drink from his goblet. He, 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 he sleeps with it in his arms. I mean, this, this, this you is his, is his daughter. One evening, somebody came and visited the rich man. And the rich man decided, man, we got to make dinner, but I don't want to sacrifice one of my sheep. And so the rich man goes next door to the poor man and he steals that ewe and he puts that ewe to death and then he serves that ewe as a meal to the visitor. And David, hearing Nathan tell the story, is enraged. Oh, that man needs to be executed. And Dave, or Nathan, in, in one of the best lines in all of Scripture, watches David melt down in judgment for what this wealthy man had done to the poor man. And then Nathan simply says, Oh, David... 
Good old King James comes in right here. Thou art the man. It's exactly what you have done. The story that Nathan told painted the picture of a young wife who was cherished and loved by her husband who was powerfully taken away and then consumed. Bathsheba's pregnant. Gives birth to this child. And because of David's sin, this child wouldn't survive. Bathsheba has paid a huge price for David's sin. She lost her son. She's lost her husband. She's lost everything that she once had, and she is in mourning. Have you ever had to pay the cost of somebody else's sin? Well, right there in the middle of Jesus' family tree, the wife of Uriah flashes like a beacon that there is one coming who would pay for somebody else's sin. Bathsheba being in Jesus' lineage means that God can redeem all things. Guys, I, when darkness is forced on us, God's tender care will never leave us. Even in the most difficult of times. Let me finish this up. Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliad, Eliad fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathen, Mathen fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So many of us in this room have had a small piece of plastic with two pink lines change our lives dramatically. Some of us in this room had no idea what we were walking into with a conversation with our wife when she produced said piece of plastic with two pink lines. Some of us in this room stood there with our mouths agape, looking like total morons when our wife tried to explain to us what this meant. Luke chapter 1 says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman! The Lord is with you. <laughs> she was deeply troubled by the statement, might be an understatement, wondering what kind of greeting could this be. 
And the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he's going to be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, have you lost your mind? How could this possibly be? I've never been with a man. And the angel replied to her, Oh, yes, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One born to you will be called the Son of God. Your baby will be called Jesus. And this doesn't just mess with the life of a probably 14-year-old Mary at this time. This is the fulfillment of hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years of prophetic word, fulfilling the lineage that we just read through. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, I have a personal experience, conception is anything but regular. It is a miracle when you're like, how? Try to wrap your head around how all this works and, and how this baby grows. How much more so for Mary, who's sitting there one day and suddenly is like, ooh, what was that? Why is there a hand sticking out of my belly all of a sudden? Which happens. And it's creepy. Just going to say it, okay? But in the middle of being creeped out when it slips into her mind, instead of it being, what a miracle this birth is, is, what is happening to me? Well, what just happened? How, how, how could this be? Imagine the questions you have as a 14-year-old girl who's just had this announcement, knowing that you were going to be carrying the Son of God. I mean, what am I going to tell my parents? What am I going to tell Joseph? How is Joseph going to react? What are the people in the town going to think? What about this wedding that we've been planning what kind of pregnancy is this going to be? What kind of child is this, is this going to be? But with all of those questions that came over and over and over again, somehow Mary immediately embraced God's unimaginable will and completely trusted God's next step for her when she responded to Gabriel with these words, Luke 1, verse 38. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. This unassuming young girl was chosen to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Doesn't get any more unlikely than that. She probably planned on living an ordinary life, but her life was going to be anything but ordinary now. I bet you there was nobody growing up around Mary like, I bet you you're going to be the one that gives birth to the Messiah, Mary. She's just like everybody else. But what we have found in the lineage leading up to Jesus, we find in Mary's own life, God often uses surprising people in surprising situations to get the greater glory. And what an unexpected thing for the, for the Messiah to come from a lineage of such broken people with such broken stories and ultimately lead right through this unexpected teenage girl. When you think about these stories, right, some have sinned, some have been sinned against, some are outsiders. I mean, our own stories might seem unlikely and insignificant, and maybe there's some things in our own past that we'd rather hide than bring into the light, but, but what you have to do is you understand the genealogy leading up to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is that there is a thread, and that thread is God's faithfulness. Their sin, their rebellion, their brokenness, it's not seen as an opportunity for God just to wash his hands and walk away. Their sin, their rebellion, and their brokenness is actually an opportunity for God to come nearer. Jesus 
born into this hurting and fractured world, came from a long line of hurting and fractured people. But hurting and fractured isn't the end of their story, and it doesn't have to be the end of yours either. There's hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for I. Jesus came to redeem us so that our shame would be taken away. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He entered into our mess to carry away our sins and offer forgiveness because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. He's come to remove chains. He's come to remove our fear. He's come to remind us that we are not rejected in Jesus Christ. First Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This lineage that leads up to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, reminds us that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how we failed to do or what we've failed to be, that as Paul says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You don't want to brag about a lot, but you want to own some things. I feel like Peter when I read 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You know, Peter, don't wash my feet, Jesus. Don't wash my feet, Jesus. Don't wash my feet, Jesus. Then he's like, but Jesus says, but if you, I don't wash your feet, you can't have anything to do with me. And then Peter's like, wash all of me, Jesus. Give me a bath. Man, I read 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Thank you, Jesus. That's me. I, I, let me tell you how I said, I don't mean that. My hope is built on Christ and his righteousness and his salvation of this broken and wretched soul. How about yours? Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this place that loves your word so much. I, I pray that we would continue to be faithful in, in sharing it. I pray that we wouldn't get distracted by things that really don't matter. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. That as you saw us as broken people, you didn't walk away. You came near us. Thank you that you rescued us even from ourselves. Thank you for the stories of these women in the genealogy. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for the, the nearness that they had with you. And I pray that you'd use even those stories to encourage people here today, those who who might feel like they have failed you, who might feel like they're too far away, who might feel like there's no hope for them. God, I pray that their eyes would be open to the rescue of Jesus Christ. That even as we close, that, that they would confess with their mouth they're a sinner, that they need a Savior, and that Jesus is the only Savior. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. It's in your matchless name I pray. Amen.